listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. On Real Fiction, I talk with novelists, journalists, poets, and scholars about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. This week, I've invited an expert to discuss the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. The recent exit from Kabul has caused shockwaves in Washington, D.C. and around the world. And as the next wave of refugees arrive in the United States with special immigrant visas, many are asking how to help. Today, we'll take a few moments to reflect on what happened this month in Afghanistan and what to expect in the coming weeks and months. I'll be back in a moment with Afghanistan professor Paul Miller of Georgetown University. My guest today is Dr. Paul Miller. He is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. As a practitioner, Dr. Miller served as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. He has worked as an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency and served as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. His most recent book, American Power and Liberal Order, A Conservative Internationalist Grand Strategy, was published by Georgetown University Press. As the current Afghanistan crisis unfolds, Professor Paul Miller is a widely sought-after authority to examine something that we are just beginning to come to grips with. And Afghan refugees are arriving in the United States. They face immediate and long-term needs. So here to provide us with some clear-eyed observations as we all attempt to follow events is Dr. Paul Miller. Welcome to Real Fiction. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Professor Miller, I, I think it's fair to say that most Americans turned away from events in Afghanistan in the past 18 months and perhaps longer as we had a presidential election and COVID was the global headline. But Even as recently as July 8, in a press conference, President Biden was asked about a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and his answer was that it was not inevitable that there are 300,000 well-equipped soldiers in Afghanistan. You have a comprehensive background, both historically and real-world experience in the daily operations of, in Afghanistan. So I know that your gaze never turned away. Can you share with us, in your view, how did things unravel so quickly? Well, they unraveled quickly in 2021 because President Biden chose to withdraw all remaining U.S. forces, including the air support that we have been giving to the Afghan army. Um, the war in Afghanistan had, had never been going that well. Uh, there's a lot to say about our strategic missteps in the past, but we had achieved a very rough kind of stability or um, sustainable posture by 2014. For the last seven years, very few U.S. soldiers were on the ground. We were not engaged in ground combat in large numbers, 
and very few U.S. forces, uh, U.S. soldiers were killed in combat. Um, only 66 were killed in combat over the past seven years. I, I say that not to make light of those deaths, but to give some historical perspective that this was hardly a war for the Americans. The Afghan army had taken on the bulk of the fight, uh, and they were able to hold the line against the Taliban as long as they had our support, our resources, and especially our air support. That's what President Biden pulled the plug on earlier this year. And when he did so, that catalyzed a collapse of morale uh, by the Afghan army. And once that happened, uh, the end came pretty quickly. Hmm. How do you respond to statements that suggest the Afghan government failed to create a functioning government, they were incapable of responding to Taliban advances, and that there was corruption at every level? Um, I, I hear this a lot. How do you look at this broadly? It's absolutely true that the Afghan government was plagued with corruption and incompetence. Um, they were a pretty frustrating partner to deal with over the years, to be very frank about it. Hmm. Um, I don't think that's the driving cause of the collapse last week. Uh, the collapse last week was because the Afghan army uh, suffered a crippling blow to their morale and decided not to fight. N none of the Afghan soldiers wanted to go on a suicide mission against the Taliban right. when they knew they no, no longer had our support. There's, I could recount the history here with the Afghan government and its problems with corruption and how we tried to solve that problem. I, I completely recognize it was a real, a big problem. I don't think it was the most important thing or the, or the driver of the chaos we saw last week. When I think about um, the bewilderment and confusion from everyone in the States and around the world following this collapse. Uh, I'm thinking that it must be very frustrating for experts like you who uh, have been watching this and have perhaps been warning the administration and officials. How do you assess the Biden administration's handling of strategic advice they received this summer? Um, very poorly. Uh, the Biden administration was dealt a very difficult hand and they played it as badly as possible. Mm. Uh, I can imagine somebody being dealt a hand difficult like this and at least trying to do a better job. But from the very beginning, even on the campaign trail, um, President Biden seemed to exude an air of carelessness, annoyance, even flippancy about Afghanistan. He just didn't like to talk about it. He didn't like to take questions about it. Uh, he he kind of batted the questions away. And he was very clear that he intended to get out as uh, quickly as possible What's, what's evident is because of his lack of urgency and inattention, it also meant a lack of planning. And that's why the withdrawal, when it finally happened, was chaotic, uh, messy, and has, has not, it's not actually finished yet because we've left 10,000 American citizens on the ground and upwards of 100,000 Afghan allies on the ground. And now we have to send more troops back to try to get them out. That's how poorly this was planned and executed. Uh, so I think the, uh, the president clearly did not heed the warnings uh, from the intelligence community or just from from regular observers. It, it didn't take secret intelligence to tell you that the collapse of the Afghan army would lead to the, the Taliban's victory. And that's exactly what happened. For years, experts had been warning that this was a possibility if we left precipitously, which is what Biden chose to do. I think one of the biggest concerns um, as the 
the collapse happened so quickly was what happened at the embassy. It closed quickly. There are reports that the Taliban have seized um, biometric data. And I'm not clear whether that biometric data was housed at the embassy or somewhere within uh, the military, but there are reports that they have it and can be used to uh, identify Afghans who were supportive of the government and military. Are you aware what happened with specific embassy information? Uh, what do the Taliban have and what do they intend to do with it? I've read those reports as well, that they have the biometric data and other information. I can't, of course, verify any of that, but I've read those reports. Um, I have also seen reports, sadly, that the Taliban outside of Kabul they are already um, doing what we feared. Uh, they're undertaking reprisal attacks. They're going house to house, hunting for Afghans who worked with the coalition. They're hunting for human rights activists, uh, for women who are pushing back against the Taliban's repression. And in some cases, they're just summary executing people, particularly any soldiers, any Afghans who served as special forces or pilots uh, are, are getting targeted as well as religious minorities. There's a, there's a small Afghan Christian population, and uh, they've also come in uh, for, for special targeting by the Taliban, apparently. And the Taliban is doing this outside of Kabul because inside Kabul, there are still some journalists. And the Taliban don't want to get that kind of international attention. They, they know they're under scrutiny, and they, do, and they want to avoid the kind of notoriety they had in the 90s. So they're not doing this in the public eye as blatantly as they did 25 years ago, but apparently it is happening in the provinces. Do you have a sense of how sophisticated the Taliban are with uh, respect to technology? I mentioned the bio data, but even more broadly with uh, social media and um, managing, I guess, censoring internet connectivity. This generation of Taliban is more tech savvy than uh, the, the 1990s Taliban. They have a much more slick propaganda operation, a PR operation. They know how to spin the international media. They are on social media. Uh, I've seen people posting and reposting allegedly Taliban accounts on Twitter. Uh, as for their ability to conduct any sort of cyber operations, I don't know. But the broader jihadist community, um, I think, does have that capability somewhere. Now that the Taliban controls a government and a country, it will be much easier for them to attract jihadist talent, uh, you know, cyber talent from wherever in the world uh, it is. That's, that was, that's been the big fear all along is once the Taliban takes over, it becomes um, center of gravity for jihadists from across the world and di different groups to come and cross-pollinate, share their skill set. That's exactly what led to the rise of al-Qaeda in the first place, or rather the, the ability of al-Qaeda to reach internationally in the first place. And now we're right back at, at that situation today. As a scholar and um, person just watching this unfold, where are you getting your primary sources of news? And specifically, are there are there hashtags on Twitter that seem particularly reliable? What what can you advise listeners where to get best information, and what are your best practices? Well, my newsfeed. Um, I subscribe to the Washington Post. I subscribe to the Atlantic. Um, I do, I am on Twitter and I, I wish I could tell you all the people I follow, but it's too many. Over the years, I have followed many people affiliated with uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan um, and uh, both government officials and NGOs and researchers and scholars who all follow this. I do, sometimes I'm not even consciously aware of where the information is coming from. Mm -hmm. but when I 
compile all that um, by just kind of scanning through these feeds, it helps me uh, develop that broader picture. For for your listeners, you know, I think that a good quality newspaper like the Post um, or maybe the Wall Street Journal is uh, is good for its international coverage. And, and again, I do like the Atlantic because I think it's got a good good coverage, but also good analysis. So those are some good publications. Uh, I have had an opportunity to take a look at a few international headlines. Um, and, and I mentioned that uh, in your background, you served as director uh, for Afghanistan and Pakistan for the National Security Council. So you would have had a lot of interaction with foreign governments. What is your sense of the reaction to uh, U.S. pulling out of Kabul in, in this manner? I've seen that um, some of our allies have made uh, public statements about whether or not the United States is reliable. I think I've seen a, a British politician, an Israeli politician, and perhaps a, a German as well. I, and I don't remember exactly who these are, but they're members of government who are kind of openly questioning uh, if the United States can be trusted, if we really care about our allies. I don't want to overplay that. That's just a, co- a couple of comments. And at the end of the day, all politics is local. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens on one side of the world does not always translate immediately into something on the other side of the world. I think that this mess in Afghanistan has a most direct impact on our relationship with India because it's their backyard. And I think they're deeply unimpressed with us tucking tail and running and leaving chaos in the wake. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, Japan is about to leave the U.S.-Japanese treaty. I, you know, these things are, are different. They're, they're not necessarily connected that tightly. Um, you asked about governments around the world. I also note that Russia and China are still operating their embassies and more or less openly crowing about this. You know, they, mm. they've, they've not, I don't believe that they openly supported the Taliban, but they're pretty happy to see us humiliated and they're pretty happy to see all our efforts come to nothing, um, which tells you all you need to know about their vision of world order. They plainly do not believe in the liberal international order. They are parasites on the liberal international order where they benefit from it, they get rich from it, but they're very happy to subvert it and to support other movements and governments, authoritarian movements, that are corrosive of the free world. And so that's their vision of world order, and I'm afraid that it's actually benefiting from what's happened in Afghanistan. Their vision of the world is now advancing. Okay, but then how do you respond to President Biden's statements that by pulling out of Afghanistan allows the United States to focus on on areas where terrorist activity is um, growing and more prominent? Where in the world is terrorist activity more prominent than <laughs> than the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region? Uh, it's true that there are jihadist groups uh, elsewhere, but South Asia has a special place in the um, rise of jihadism. It's always been ground zero. It's always been the headquarters. Most people think that it was the Middle East. It's not. Uh, Middle Eastern terrorism has usually stayed within the Middle East, but terrorism from South Asia has has been exported more often. Um, it's also where the, the densest network of overlapping jihadist groups has always existed. It's not just Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. It's also the Pakistani Taliban. It's Lashkari Taiba. It's Hezbi Islami. Um, it's several different groups within Pakistan that have been fighting against each other for a long time. Um, all of these groups, there's there's a very large population of radicalized and potentially radicalized young men uh, who are susceptible to this ideology and they're right there. For us to lose in that place of the world has tremendous strategic significance for the future. Look, jihadists around the world, they're celebrating today. 
they are openly celebrating the victory of their cause against the other superpower. They already tell themselves that they defeated the Soviet Union in the 1980s in Afghanistan, and now they get to say the same thing about us. They feel invincible, and you can bet that they're going to try to use this to take the next step in their global terrorist campaign. What that next step is, I don't know, but I don't want to find out. Do you have the sense that the Biden administration is uh, taking some of this advice uh, to heart? And are, are, do you see any course corrections being discussed kind of behind the scenes? Not yet. They certainly will do what they need to do to keep an eye on international terrorist groups. However, our ability to do that has been constrained by our loss in Afghanistan. Hmm. We no longer have eyes and ears there. We do not have the intelligence assets we had. And that means we simply do not know what al-Qaeda is doing or the other terrorist groups are doing in Afghanistan or Western Pakistan. And that lack of a capacity means that the administration may not be able to do the course correction that they need to do. Right. Uh, well, as I watch the the events unfold this week, um, I know there are efforts to maintain security and secure the airport and the airstrip. Um, we know that there are daily flights coming into the United States, and in, in fact, uh, Washington, D.C., daily bringing Afghan refugees to safety. A big question is, does the United States have a moral obligation to rescue those who aided journalists, government, and military? I believe we absolutely do have such a duty. We we promised the Afghans for 20 years to stand by them in, in writing. We signed agreements. We signed almost treaties promising to stand by Afghanistan. Now, plainly, we've failed the country, but we should at least stand by the individual Afghans, and there's tens of thousands of them, who worked with us over the years as interpreters, as spies, and as soldiers. Uh, they were uh, They did more to serve their country and our country in the fight against our common enemies than, you know, than, than many Americans have done. And I think it would be a betrayal of those allies if we did not do everything we can to save them, to save them from the Taliban and get them out of the country. And yes, likely bring them here to the United States or help resettle them elsewhere. I think that's the absolute minimum that we can do. After Vietnam, I just heard that we ended up accepting something like 700,000 refugees mm. in the years after the fall of Saigon. Uh, thank, you know, the number of Afghans is nowhere near that number right now. I, I believe it's around 100,000. So s surely we can do this. Surely we can get 100,000 Afghans out of the country and resettle them here or elsewhere. My sense is that there is an enormous desire to help the refugees as they arrive with basic needs. Um, and I, I, I see that happening um, play out on all my feeds and emails. But it's also true that when we have refugees coming into the country, the short-term needs and the attention given to that can evaporate very quickly Everyone coming here is, will have long-term needs. And from what I have seen, um, both in the past and what's happening now, it is uh, there's a strong role that faith-based organizations are playing with sustained support. So it's one of those conversations when people are asking, where do I go? to offer support. Not everybody's comfortable with um, the faith-based organizations offering the long-term support, but the, the fact is they've been doing this for 20 years. What is your sense of, of who's helping, how they're helping, and where people can go if, if they really want to be um, of assistance to this next wave of Afghan refugees coming into the States? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is important that we uh, 
help uh, with resettlement and integration for any refugees who do come here. I did a little bit of research on this because I, I, I want to be involved myself. And in my local area where I live, I what I found is that the main resettlement agency in my area is an organization called Lutheran Social Services. It's, it's a faith-based organization. Um, and I'm trying to reach out to figure out what I can do to help. Uh, and I have no 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 problems at all with it being faith-based. I'm a you know, person of faith myself. Um, and they do, uh, my understanding is they are committed to the long haul. And that is really important for the refugees who are needing resettlement. Um, look, I'll, I'll kind of flip the question here. For those who are nervous about the refugees coming, they are coming. And so the number one priority is get them integrated, welcome them. And that means more than driving by to, as you say, you know, um, buy them a roll of toilet paper. They, they need relationships. They need community. They need, they need to know what it is to be an American. And what better way to do that than to form relationships for the long haul? That's what refugee resettlement really means. So uh, I, I would like, you know, again, I intend to do this myself, get involved with these organizations. At the very least, they, need, they certainly need money. And if that's all you can do, that's wonderful. Pro- provide them with some money, give them a donation so that they can then use it in their, as experts can, to fund the long lasting programs. If you can give time and volunteer and be part of that relational network, that's even more valuable. This is uh, unfolding daily as we speak, and but it's that sustained support that uh, resettlement requires in order for it to be successful. I know that you have another book in development. You'll be looking at every detail of this crisis as it unfolds. I'm sort of curious, uh, as you think about your career and what the next steps are in evaluating Afghanistan, what would you like to see in terms of your research impacting social policy? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, um, I think every, every maybe political scientist, you know, hopes that they're able to provide insight, provide knowledge that is useful uh, to make human life better, to, to um, ameliorate the human condition, to provide for greater peace and justice and flourishing. It's very hard to see where that's happening right now. Um, you know, we're living in an era where there's a kind of a loss of, there's a crisis of confidence in our governments and in their, 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 their competence. And it's not hard to see why. So uh, where do I hope to have an influence? I, I don't have any influence in the Biden administration, that's plain. Uh, but if I can be of service as an educator, uh, informing public opinion, um, particularly in this moment, it seems to be a teaching moment. If I can help people understand how we got here in Afghanistan um, so that we can learn the right lessons, not despair of our role in the world, not despair of our ideals, not despair of even the idea of helping other countries with a humanitarian situation, helping other countries with democracy. If we can, if I can help people understand our need to maintain, uphold, and extend the free world, well, that, that would be a, a, a great service. And I would love to, humbly love to do that service uh, if, if people are receptive to that message. My guest today has been Dr. Paul Miller. He is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. For listeners who want more background on strategy and how we got here, his most recent book is titled American Power and Liberal Order, Conservative Internationalist Grand Strategy. Dr. Paul Miller, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.
You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. All episodes of Real Fiction are archived on realfictionradio.com, and you can find every episode on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.